As you've taken your seats, I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. There is a great danger in disunity. Disunity, whether it be in marriages, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in homes, whether it be in the workplace, and specifically this morning, whether it be in the church, is not simply problematic, it's actually incredibly dangerous. Disunity is one of the things that Satan strives for, especially when it comes to the church and especially when it comes to the Christian life. He wants to get in where there is unity and he wants to divide, he wants to separate, he wants to cause dissension, he wants to cause division, he wants to cause factions. And he wants to do that because of what God so desperately wants for us as believers in Jesus Christ and what he so desperately wants for his church, which is greater and greater unity. Disunity distracts us. It distracts us in a number of ways, but it distracts us from doing what we should be doing and doing it the way we should be doing it. It distorts us, it distorts our perspective on reality. Our emotions oftentimes begin to fuel our perspectives. It has a way of inciting our pride and the sense of justice that we seek and vengeance for ourselves and matters of being wronged by others. And ultimately it destroys. It destroys so many of the precious things that God wants us to enjoy in this life and especially in the life of the church. It destroys the joy that God has intended us to experience as believers. It destroys the joy that God has intended to produce in the life of the fellowship of the church and the community of God that he forges together. It destroys our peace, both subjectively in our hearts and objectively with others. And most of all, what we see when it comes to the church is that disunity actually destroys the church's effectiveness. And this is one of the primary reasons why Satan is so intent on bringing disunity into the church. He knows that it will render the church essentially useless or at least ineffective on their mission. This is why Jesus... In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 23, before he sends his disciples out into the world, one of the things he does is he prays this magnificent prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer in which he prays for the entire church, the church present through the disciples and the church future, including you and I. And here's what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, that's in reference to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. And they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Unity in the church is so important to God because it actually reflects God to the watching world. And so, through this text, I want us to see the necessity of the pursuit of unity. And so let's read it together, beginning in Acts chapter 4, picking up at verse 32. 
Here's what it says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Every once in a while throughout the book of Acts, Luke, who's the author of Acts, has these kind of pullover moments. He pulls the car over to the side and he gives a bit of a summary statement as to what's happening in general in the life of the church. You'll notice there's a bit of a shift here. He moves from more of a narrative style where he's basically telling you or unfolding a story of what's happening and then all of a sudden he gets into more of a, a, a general sense in what he's explaining to be the life of the church. And here we see that this is exactly what he's doing. And this is important for a few different reasons, primarily because what he's attempting to do is establish some common ideals that were taking place in the life of the early church so that those who would read this in later generations would look and say, that's how it's supposed to look. Here, the great emphasis in this text, the big idea that you need to walk away with is this. God desires unity in the church of Jesus Christ. He loves unity. And where there's unity, what we see is there is joy, there is peace, there is flourishing, and there is effectiveness. And that's what we see happening in the life of the church right here. So the pursuit of unity requires four things. First, I want you to note this. It requires a common passion for our purpose. A common passion for our purpose, for our mission Verse 32, just the first half of the verse, tells us something incredibly important. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. At this point, the church is just exploding. I mean, there's a massive number, potentially more than 8,000 people, and it's remarkable here that one of the key marks of the church in the early days with such a huge amount of people is that they are of one heart and soul. They're so unified together. And this, this phrase, one heart and soul, really describes that exactly. It describes a comprehensive unity. And the depth of this unity is really demonstrated by Luke's combination of these terms, heart and soul. These terms both imply a unity of passion and a unity of purpose. These were what the believers of the early church shared most in common. They were passionate about their Savior, Jesus Christ, and they were passionate about the purpose for which he had called them. The word heart is a significant biblical concept. Heart is used more all-inclusively, I could say, than the way that we typically use the, the phrase heart in our English contemporary language. The word heart essentially in the Greek meant this, it's the mission control center of a life. It is the place where all of the decisions are processed and your behavior flows from your heart. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6? 
He talked about the treasures that you store up in your heart and the way that you identify the treasures of your heart is to look at the fruit of your life. In other words, what you put into your heart, what you store there will ultimately drive the trajectory of your life. It will produce either good fruit or bad fruit. That's why when we look at our kids watching too much television, one of the things we say is garbage in, garbage out. And we believe that's true just as a biblical principle. The more of the world we love and take in and fill our hearts with, the more our behavior will reflect that of the world. But the opposite is equally as true. When we store up the right things in our heart, when we store up godly things, when the word of God saturates our lives, it too will dictate our behaviors. And the basic concept that Christians need to grasp is this, that what you are passionate about is what you will ultimately live for. The passions of your heart will dictate how you live your life. So if it's your family, if it's money, if it's a spouse, if it's a job, a position, if it's authority, if it's reputation, if that is what you are most passionate about, if it's a hobby, you will see that everything in your life begins to revolve around those things and reflect those things to others. The word soul as it's being used here, means to share the same mental focus about the same thing. You know, it's to be honed in on one common thing, and that's what we see taking place in the life of the church. The idea here is that their minds understand that they exist for the same purpose. There are some people who translate this word soul as mind to try and give that flavor, but the better translation is soul. That's really all-encompassing of the mind. And we see something significant modeled in the life of the early church, something significant that we ought to embrace. And as John Wesley put it, he said this, their loves, their hopes, and their passions are joined together. And what joined them was not simply a, a common affiliation with the church, and so often, churches exist more like a social club, and, and that is the draw, that's the appeal, it's a community to belong to. And while that's important, and while I think we'll see that fleshed out through the, the rest of this passage, what we need to understand is this, that there is a deeper spiritual unity and a unity of passionate commitment to a mission, to a common cause. A community without a common passion for a common purpose is essentially a glorified social club. Community life is never an end in and of itself. A vibrant community is a community on mission, a community who knows what they're doing, who knows what they're called to. And what is described here is a passionate unity, or rather a unifying passion. And you see how those two things work together. It's not based on common personal feelings, but on a cause that is greater than the individual. Paul, the apostle, insists throughout the New Testament that the unity of heart and soul described here was the norm for the Christian community. This is the thing that he prays for the church to pursue. This is the thing he hopes God will produce in the life of the church. And let me just give you a few scriptures to show you how normative this is to be in the life of the church. Philippians 2, verse 2 says this, Complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
We must strive for such unity with utmost dedication. This is to be an intentional pursuit of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4.3, be eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see the, the implication there that this is something we pursue. This is not something that happens by accident. And in fact, without a rigorous pursuit of this, I can guarantee you because all of us are sinful and our flesh pulls us in the opposite direction of what God wants. If we're not pursuing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, what will eventually happen is fragmentation and disunity. It's inevitable. The desire to obey and please God is a key ingredient in this kind of unity. Each individual must be committed to personally pursuing God. Look at what Romans 15, 5 and 6 says. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is a precious thing to God. And every one of us has felt the effects, haven't we? Whether it be in church or whether it be in the home or other relationships, we felt the effects of disunity. We know the pain, we know the hurt, we know the problems it produces. There's nothing sweeter in relationships than a Christ-centered unity. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. And I think that's important to state. There are, are some Christians who believe that everybody ought to look just like them. They ought to look exactly the same. They ought to like the same things, read the same books, school their kids the same way. I mean, you name it. Everything has to be a certain way. There's no room for flexibility. And yet, according to the scriptures, I believe that, uh, that the Bible prizes and praises diversity in the midst of unity. We're not interested in cookie-cutter Christians. We're not interested in Christian clones Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, there is one body and there are many parts. There is unity in diversity and that's possible and it's actually a healthy thing. The early Christians certainly differed in their opinions on many things. They differed on their opinion on food, on clothing, on language, and customs. But what we see, which is so important, here's the unifying factor in it all. They were united as to who Christ was as the Lord of all. And every one of them recognized the necessity of living a life for him, of following him with their whole heart, of pursuing his purposes for the church and for their lives. And so the question for us is this, if we're on board with this, if this is what we are pursuing, and I trust it is, I think this is built into the very fabric of our church, how do we strive for this, and how do we cultivate this to greater degrees, and how do we make sure that we're working on this so that we're not kind of slipping and, and kind of diverging away from what God has called us to and slipping into some kind of disunity? In many ways, it's, we understand this, right? This kind of living is countercultural. Even in the church, it's countercultural. We live in a culture, and we talk about this often, that loves autonomy, that loves our anonymity. We don't want anybody prying into our personal lives because it's none of their business, right? So as a result, what's happened is this, that we have lowered the standards and settled for some kind of a functional unity, even in the church, rather than a true, helpful, God-honoring, biblical kind of unity. I have five things I think that we can do 
to help maintain and strengthen this kind of unity in the church. The first is this, let the Bible set the standards for unity, not your preference or the culture. We need to be countercultural in this area. And one of the reasons is because of what Jesus prayed. This kind of unity actually reflects the unity that is seen in the triune God. The fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit is intended to be modeled and reflected in the church of Jesus Christ. So where there is disunity, there is being in the church, there is being portrayed to the culture a a dishonest and a sinful picture of who God really is, a distorted picture of who God is. But where there is unity and where we allow God to establish what that looks like and means, there is a beautiful picture of what God intends all of humanity to experience. And you have to believe this. Look, people are designed by God in the image of God. This is what Genesis says, to experience some very fundamental things that reflect that image. And one of those things is community. Every human being, whether or not they want to isolate themselves in their sin or whether or not they've been hurt and and pained by things that have happened in their life, every human craves that sense of community and belonging. And that's because God has hardwired us to experience it. The church is the place that shows the world what true community is supposed to look like. And it shows them that they, they, what they long for can actually be experienced in its fullness and in its completeness, completeness in the world. You see, we gotta be countercultural so that we show people how God wants to draw them into real community with himself. The second reason is this, or the second way we do this, excuse me, is this, we we have to prepare for disappointments and hurts and not let them dictate and control our lives. For some of you, it's painful to even consider this kind of unity, and I mentioned this last week, but I I don't think it's a problem to remind us and be repetitive in a sense in this because I think it's so important. Some of us have been deeply hurt. Some of us have been deeply disappointed And some of us are allowing those hurts and disappointments and fears of what others might do to us dictate and drive and control our lives. And what we're forfeiting is the great blessing of a more fulfilling life, the motivation to greater holiness through the relationships that are afforded to us in the body of Christ, and we're forfeiting the security and joy that comes to those who attempt this kind of living to the glory of God. Third thing we can do is this, to strengthen and, and cultivate this kind of unity in the church is, is we can crucify ourselves. And that's biblical language for dying to self, for staying incredibly humble. And, and I want to I present this, I think last week I did this on the, the opposite side. We have to be humble and vulnerable towards people, but I think one of the things that we need to make sure we're allowing the Spirit of God to produce within us is a deeper willingness to express the compassion of Jesus Christ towards those who hurt us, those who are different from us, those who bother us, to, to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the gentleness, the peace, the forgiveness when wronged. And, and by this kind of humility and this kind of crucifying ourselves, I mean like Jesus, we refuse to defend ourselves when we're wrong. We, we refuse to exact vengeance and we leave that to the Lord. We refuse to try to justify ourselves. We let love cover a multitude of sins. 
That's not to say we don't address sin where it's needed and that we, we overlook offenses that need to be dealt with for the good of that person. It just means this. We're not so driven by our selfish motivation to resolve problems with people. We're not so driven by the hurt they've caused us. We're driven in our relationships by the glory of God. Fourth, we need to do this. We need to meet often and share openly. The picture we get from the Gospels about Jesus' band of disciples is that of a group that spent a lot of time traveling, talking, worshiping, ministering. It's a problem when you have too many words to say. They just start getting jumbled together. They spent all this time learning together, being with one another and I think that this is a, just a beautiful picture of what relationships in the church are supposed to look like. We do life together. We love together. We hurt together. We praise together. We help each other. We're there in the good times and the bad. And this kind of fellowship doesn't often happen overnight. I think it takes time and it takes an openness. It takes a willingness on the part of God's people to say, I'm committed to this and I'm going to fight for this. I want to forge this and I know it takes hard work, but I believe the hard work is going to pay off. We believe that this can happen in this church in a variety of different ways. I think that this, these kind of relationships can happen on a one-to-one level, on mentorship levels, on discipleship relationships, you know, life-on-life life with one another. And one of the primary ways that we want to make sure this is happening and to give you an opportunity to make sure this is happening is through the life of the small group. These are the very things we are striving to forge in our small group ministries. And yet, here's what I would challenge you with this morning. Those things don't happen just because you join a small group. They all rest upon you as individuals and me as an individual. We won't have this kind of unity. We won't have this kind of fellowship. And we won't have this kind of openness unless everyone is committed to saying, that's what I'm going for. And so often, that is restricted even in our, our, our small group context because of, of us as individuals in our pride and unwillingness to open up and unwillingness to be vulnerable and transparent with each other, which just shuts down the kind of unity and forfeits the kind of unity in relationships that God says will bless you, that God says will bring you greater joy. Our small groups, just so you know, they're not an end to themselves. They're a means to an end. Our small groups are designed to produce deeper fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. Last thing we can do in this pursuit is this. We can make sure we all have a common passion for our purpose. And we're just coming full circle to wrap up this point. We must understand why we are here. We must understand the purpose of the church. We must understand why God saved us. And for some of you, you're not saved. And so you're floating around in life, and so you don't know your purpose. You're still trying to figure that out. And I'm telling you this morning, God is telling you that there is a purpose for you. There is a purpose for you to belong in community, in community with him and community with his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. We must know why we exist. And if I could sum it up, I could use our mission statement, but let me just sum it up like this. We exist to know him and to make him known. That's it. We exist to know him and to make him known. Those things must be our passion. Those things must be our purpose. Secondly, 
The pursuit of unity requires radical perspective toward our possessions. A radical perspective towards our possessions. And we're going to hit this a little later on in the passage, but let's just touch upon it right now in the second half of verse 32. Luke writes this, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is one of the great expressions of the unity in the church that we see unfolding here. One of the greatest evidences of their unity is seen in their attitude first, not their actions, we'll deal with that next, their attitude towards their possessions. And your actions always follow your attitude, don't they? Your attitude is so critical, and here we see what their attitude is. They didn't see their possessions as their own. They held everything in common. And this word is where we get, by the way, this word common. If you'll remember back to Acts 2.42, this is where we get the word fellowship. This fellowship really conveys the idea of active participation and sharing with one another. This is a life of sharing each other's lives, sharing in every aspect of one another's lives and sharing every part of our lives with others. Now, if we look at this passage and we do what some people have done, which is this, we focus on what seems to be uh, the, the impracticality of this. Like, this doesn't seem practical. How exactly would we do something like this? Or if we look at this and see some kind of communism being enforced, we're missing the point entirely. Communism, listen, says practically, what's yours is everyone's. Christianity says, what's mine is yours. See the difference? This isn't forced upon anybody. This is a voluntary expression of their heart for God and for one another. This is a powerful picture of the love of God being expressed in the community of God through the redeeming and powerful working of Jesus Christ. That no one spoke of their possessions as their own indicates a profound reorientation had occurred among believers towards the world's goods. This is a message we desperately need to hear in our culture, isn't it? This is a message, I'll be perfectly honest with you, this is a message I need to hear regularly. I can become so fascinated with the things of this world so quickly. I, str I struggle with this. I guard my heart. I pray that God helps me to grow in this. But I'm telling you right now, I find it in this culture and because of my sinful heart, it's very easy to be enticed by the things of this world. In our culture, many people live for possessions. It drives them. It fuels them. The pursuit of more, better, keeping up with the Joneses, In our culture, possessions often become the source of pleasure for people. They become a sense of security for people. They become, sadly, a source of identity for people. A way in which people say, look at me, look what I've done, look what I've made myself. And I would suggest to you that the problem of possessions and materialism in our culture is fundamentally a problem of idolatry. Idolatry is wanting something else more than you want God. Loving something else more than you love God, and that includes yourself. That includes your things. That includes good things that God has given to you. 
Jesus actually addressed this issue of idolatry in Matthew chapter 19. So hold your hands in Acts and flip backwards in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. And it's a familiar story of the rich young man. And I want us to just read it and get a sense of what Jesus is addressing and how he's addressing the human heart in regards to their attitude towards possessions. Beginning in verse 16, it says this, And behold, a man came up to him, coming up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's a fundamental flaw in the question suggesting that somehow you could be good enough to to somehow inherit eternal life. You see, this man we already see out the gates is bent on figuring out how to accomplish this this eternal life on his own. There's a sense of self-righteousness, a sense of duty, a morality involved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And here Jesus, he's flipping the tables on him. He's wanting to expose this man's lack of goodness. See, this man thinks that he is pretty impressive. He thinks he has something to offer. He thinks that his life will somehow merit him favor with God. And so Jesus looks at him and says, okay, you want to be good? Just keep all of the commands. That's the implication here. You just keep them all. And I love it. Look what this man says here. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, well, let's just start with the big ones. Uh, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus just picks a few. But the man's response gets even better. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, here it is, he's going after his heart. You have to see this. He's going right for his heart. He's going after what he knows this man loves above him and above all else. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Well, that struck a chord. So when the young man heard this, He went away sorrowful, notice this, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty, in some translations it says, with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, look, he says, don't you understand how hard it is for a person who's rich to get into the kingdom of heaven because their hope, their security, their identity, their salvation, their joy is found not in what I have to offer. It's found in what they have possessed, what they have accumulated for themselves. That's their God is what he says to them. And the disciples are still trying to figure this out. They're understanding how, how hard it is in one sense, that the severity of what Jesus is saying. And in verse 25, it says this, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? 
In their mind, they're looking at this guy saying, he's still, I mean, he, he's kept these commands, he's pretty good, but if he can't be saved, then who can? They don't quite grasp the significance of all that Jesus has said, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And there is the hope in that line, right there. Jesus attacks the heart of humanity and their longing to, to love and to worship other things, the possessions they hold. And the question for us in this culture is the same one confronting this man. What can produce such a radical reorientation in the human heart? How can the human heart be willing to let go of all the earthly things? And by the way, that's, Jesus isn't saying, if you do this, you'll actually be saved. Jesus is telling him, there's one thing that's holding you back from clinging to me. Your arms are so busy being wrapped around your possessions, you can't wrap them around me. And you can't, have, you can't choose to worship one over the other. Excuse me, you can, but you can't choose to worship this over me. And so to worship God, right, to come into saving faith, it requires this. We take our arms off of whatever we are holding on to for our salvation, for our hope, for our security, for our joy, right, for our satisfaction, all those things. We let them go freely and we say, God, do with them what you want. And instead we say, I'm turning to you and I'm finding everything I need in you. You are what I need. You will provide what these things never can. So what is it for you this morning? Maybe if you're an unbeliever, what is that thing that your arms are wrapped so tightly around that you can't let go of to grab a hold of God and find what is so much better? Christian, let me ask you. Listen, this is, a, this is a struggle in every single human heart. We default back to this position. What is the thing that right now you know you are trusting in, you are grabbing onto, instead of holding on to God? And, and would you see that thing as so much more inadequate insufficient, pathetic when you really think of it in comparison to God and what he offers and who he is and what he can give to you. What can produce such a radical reorientation? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who can be saved? Here's the answer. With man is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. God can save. No one can save themselves. These people had found in the book of Acts infinitely more pleasure in Jesus Christ than the things of the world. That's what you need to know. They had found infinitely more security in Jesus Christ than in the things of this world. They had found infinitely greater identity in Jesus Christ than they did in the things of the world. They saw in Jesus one who valued people over possessions. And they were those people, so, excuse me, and they were those people who were so valued and so loved and cared for by God. How could they not do the same to others? Do you see how that transitions? I mean, the gospel tells them I'm so valued and loved and cherished by God and, and nothing else ultimately matters and so they're willing to let go of everything else that they think matters so that they can express that same love, care, and graciousness towards others. How could they not be changed by such love and care? There's only one possible explanation to this kind of attitude and it all goes back to what God is doing in the church, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is spilling over into every area of their life. Nothing is left untouched. And this is the kind of position that we must take in regards to our possessions. 
Possessions are a blessing to be enjoyed, but listen, more importantly than that, they are also tools to be leveraged for the work of God. It's not wrong to have possessions. It's only wrong if they have you. How do you view your possessions? Every one of us needs to do a heart check on this and see how God might be challenging us to live countercultural. The third requirement here in the pursuit of unity is this there is great power in our proclamation that we long for, that we see, and we experience a great power in our proclamation. And in verse 33, and we're going to pick up the pace here, don't worry, we see here the effects of what had just taken place in the previous section where they had prayed for boldness and God had answered, and it says this in verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The great power of the apostles came from that filling of the Spirit that they prayed for. And the emphasis in this verse, and it's going to go on to talk about the great grace, but the emphasis, it's placed forward in the Greek, which is, which is the author's way of saying, I want you to focus here. This is the thing that's emphatic. This is the thing that I want you to highlight. There's great power happening in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the focus of this message is on the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the emphasis that the apostles continually come back to. Don't you see how powerful this God is? He can take what's dead, he can take what's destroyed, he can take what's broken, and he can bring life to it. It is a message of the power of God, but it is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. They continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, meaning that God enabled them to proclaim the gospel with exactly what they prayed for, boldness, without fear in the face of mounting and increasing opposition. I think that one of the implications of this continuing power is the continuing prayers of God's people. We can't separate this section from what's happened in the previous section. The reason this is happening is because God's people band together, they united their hearts with one voice, they lifted their cries up to God, trusting in his sovereignty, and they call out to God to give them the power that was necessary to face this dark and hostile world. Remember that this kind of power is a result of humble, dependent prayers in the church. The Spirit's power is linked with the people's prayers. I remember reading, I can't remember the author, but I remember reading some time ago that all great moves of God are preceded by great moves of prayer. And then the author says this, in fact, I would argue that the greatest move of all is the movement of prayer within the church. They call out to God and remember? Remember what happened? The place began to shake. A manifestation of the presence and power of God. The place shaking is a reminder that this is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. This is the kind of prayer that God promises to answer in church. This is upon us now. If we believe this, the requirement and the responsibility is for us to start praying like this. 
to become a people who are so dependent and so humble and so willing to see and longing to see God work in might in our lives, through us, through our church. I, mean, I, can, I can I just ask you honestly, can I tell you honestly, me getting up here and preaching the gospel is nothing without your prayers. It's nothing. I need your prayers. You need my prayers. We need each other's prayers. If we're going to be effective, listen, out there in the world that is increasingly hostile to the message we bring, we need to link arms together. Prayer has to become a part of who we are in every aspect. I was so... I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I did feel like I need to, and I'm going to embarrass somebody, but it's okay. Um, this was so drilled into my heart in such a profound way a few years ago in this church. We went over to a family in this church's house, um, and uh, it, it was the beaches, I'll, be, I'll just tell you. It was Philip and Shauna Beach, and we're getting ready to leave their house, and they grabbed their family, and they pulled their family after we'd eaten there, pulled their whole family to the front door, and they looked at us and said, we want to pray for you guys. And, and you know what? Here's what struck me. Not that they prayed for us. That was awesome. We were so blessed. What struck me was that this seemed to be like a regular thing in their household. And I just, I just want to encourage you. It's things like this that need to become normal. We look at that and say, well, that's awkward. I mean, that would be awkward if I did it. Or how would that feel if I had people over and I tried to pray with them? Who cares how it feels? This is what God is calling us to greater abandonment of what people think of us, greater commitment to what God is calling us to. Amen? Like this stuff needs to characterize who we are. We've got to look different than the world because we are different from the world and we have something that they ought to look at in us and say, I want to know more. I want what you have. There's a joint effort when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to preaching God's word and the proclamation of the truth, and great power flows from great prayer. Make no mistake about it. We will only be faithful in proclaiming when we are faithful in praying. And God will bless that. I believe that with all my heart. God will bless that. There are certain things God promises to bless in his word, and we need to get about those things. God will bless that, and that's exactly what he tells us in the text, the part here that follows in this text. Look what he says. I believe this is kind of as a result of this. And great grace was upon them all. And there's a significant link being drawn between the specific ministry of the apostles and the general effect on the church. I mean, what the church is banding together with the apostles in, that's what you have to see. This is all of them. This is the church together. It's not one person. It's not 12 people doing all the work. It's the church saying, we're going for it. We're in this. We're supporting what God is doing. We believe in what God is doing. And it was the Holy Spirit-empowered word that then brought great grace upon them all. It's possible that this idea of great grace upon them all refers to the goodwill of Jerusalem toward the church. You know, they start seeing the church and start saying, wow, this is really something neat happening here. We've never seen something like this, but it all seems to be amazing. That's possible, and there's probably a sense in which that's true, but more likely it refers to the favor of God resting upon the fellowship of God's people. Like God's saying, when this is you, when this is what you're after, I'm gonna pour out my blessing upon you. I mean, the, the unity that you're pursuing in these ways is only going to heighten your joy. It's only going to heighten your experience of my presence among you. It's only going to heighten your perception of what I'm doing, the, the sense of what I'm doing in your midst. It's going to heighten your praise. You see, everything is lifted upon this. 
great grace is just being showered upon the church as they pursue Jesus Christ and they pursue unity in the church of Jesus Christ. God's blessing was upon them and it enabled them to continue to increase in the love, unity, and effectiveness that God desired for them. There seems to be a link between the powerful preaching of the gospel, I want you to notice this next, and the radical love and care for one another. I find this so fascinating and and I I don't want to make too much out of it, but it doesn't seem to be any specifically Um, directed preaching, notice this, about money and about possessions. Uh, It doesn't seem to be any passionate plea from the part of the leaders to share possessions that is driving this kind of love and mutual care for one another. Did you notice that? It seems to be the powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has so radically gripped the hearts and minds of the followers of Christ. Its effect is so obvious. There's certain things they don't have to be taught to do. They do naturally because the Spirit of God is the one who is controlling them. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving love. Gospel unity produces, finally in your points, Sacrificial participation through our provision. God is providing for his people, and we see this in such a powerful way. But the way he's providing is through the sacrificial participation of the saints, of the believers. God's just not dropping things on people's lap. He's using people to minister to other people. Again, their attitudes towards their possessions was the key, but what we see here is that it's translated into significant action on their part. Their giving was so clearly motivated by grace. In verse 34, it says that there was not a needy person among them. I mean, poverty in the body of Christ has essentially been eradicated. And and just in case you're like, well, this is pretty good. This is like a, a church sponsored welfare program, I was just, keep in mind, this is not about the wants that people had, this is about the needs that people had. So how, how are they doing this? How come there's not a needy, needy person? How did they function this way? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. People are selling land and houses and bringing the proceeds into the church. And and I I don't, I mean, listen, what you have to understand is this: the Bible is not dictating or mandating this in any way. And it's not saying that to own property or to own uh, uh, homes is is wrong or sinful. In fact, we'll see that throughout the book of Acts, people continue to own land and property and all of those things. And God does not despise that in any way. And he doesn't want people to feel guilty for doing that. That's not the point. But here we see a group of people who are willing to sacrifice so much because they love and care for the body of Christ. Isn't this so powerful? Isn't this so beautiful? And they come in and they lay them at the apostles' feet. And again, the church structure isn't fully formed at this time. It's very embryonic in its nature. 
But here they bring him to the apostles' feet, and that was a sign of great respect and trust for their leaders. They believed that the, the apostles not only were men of character and integrity and they loved the Lord, they believed that God had called them to lead the church and, and they trusted them. And so they bring the resources to them and they say, we, 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 you know, they're not mandating, hey, make sure you do this and make sure you do that. They're leaving them with the apostles and saying, we trust you to dispose of it where you see the needs of being the greatest. And we trust that you have someone of a pulse. And by the way, this is going to become problematic for the apostles because the needs are going to become so great, so plentiful. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that they have to actually choose a group of seven men to kind of help disperse the funds so the apostles can go back to doing what was primary for them, which is the word of God and prayer. There's a fascinating and important link being made here in, to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 15, as the people of God were going to go into the promised land, one of the laws and governing principles that would guide them was found in Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 where God said this, he said, there will be no poor among you. In the Old Testament, there was what's called the Sabbath year, every seventh year. The Sabbath year commands were designed to provide food for Israelites who fell on hard times, who couldn't take care of themselves or their families. So every seven years, the land was to lie fallow so that the poor could eat. Harvests were never to be reaped to the very edge of the field so that those who were poor could come along the edges of all the fields and get food and be nourished and be supplied for. It was a gracious act of God's provision. But notice that he used the people to do it. When a brother became poor in God's economy, in the community of God in the Old Testament, God wanted his people to strengthen him, to support him, to supply for him in whatever ways they could. Now, there's little evidence to show that these laws were consistently implemented throughout the Old Testament. Yet what's so fascinating is that here, when the Holy Spirit has arrived, when he's been unleashed upon the church, when the church is birthed, the believers begin to do spontaneously and naturally by the power of the Spirit what God had always required the body of Christ do for one another. They start fulfilling the Sabbath laws in one sense, and now they have the power to do it faithfully. What we see here is that these are people who loved people more than possessions. And so they were willing to liquidate their assets. Maybe some of them had multiple, multiple homes or multiple pieces of property, and so they're not selling their primary place of residence. I don't think that was the implication. But they're selling off maybe what they had, and they knew they could give away. They did what they could, and they gave generously to those in need. A very practical test of Christian love is how much you are willing to sacrifice financially. Our finances really give us a good indicator of what's happening spiritually in our hearts. And when we see others in need, that's the greatest test of all. James 2, verse 14 um, through, six, through 15 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 1 John three seventeen says this, 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The church met one another's needs and thereby showed the depth of their love for one another and for God. They are fulfilling the law of Christ. They are fulfilling the great commandments in these acts. This is voluntary, sacrificial giving, not compelled by exhortations from the leaders, but by a gospel-driven generosity, a deep understanding of the grace of God that had been graciously given to them in Christ Jesus. Barnabas is singled out here. And you'll notice what verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, that's his official name, apparently the apostles came up with a nickname for him. He was also called by the apostles Barnabas. And here in the parenthesis it tells us exactly what it means, son of encouragement. He was a Levite, which means according to the Old Testament he shouldn't have owned land, but he did at this time in Uh, The first century, it was not uncommon for Levites to own land. And he was a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it all at the apostles' feet. You know, I think Barnabas is singled out as someone who excelled in this sacrificial giving. His voluntary action is highlighted as a model of Christian generosity. But it also sets the stage, as we will see next week, for a stark contrast with Satan-like hypocrisy. Barnabas was named after his spiritual gift. He was a son of encouragement, or it can be translated as son of exhortation, a son of consolation. Every mention of Barnabas, and he becomes a, somewhat of a key figure in the book of Acts, pictures him as an encourager, someone who is supporting, I mean, someone who's always you know, trusting in the Lord and positively influencing people. Here in Acts 4, Barnabas' encouragement was highly effective. He did more than say, be warm and be filled. He gave whatever he could. A life like this draws people to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. This love is something that people can understand and it's something, listen, that they desperately want. Luke gives us a picture of the early church that should inspire us today. They exemplified Christ to the world. The question is, how about us? We may build great buildings. We may have great programs. But will we have great unity? Will we have great unity that demonstrates to the world that there is a greater power and that there is a greater God that they too must come to know and love? Great unity makes a great church. As believers' hearts beat together in spiritual oneness, their fellowship of soul puts their common focus upon a person, not possessions, upon Jesus Christ himself. 
The kind of church sees God's great power as they reach out to the lost and they experience God's great grace in their lives. And when the church is like this, there is great care as its people expend their lives to help one another. This only happens when we are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ.